from a website called A Thousand Reasons to Live, which is a page devoted to people who've been struggling with suicide. Some contributors gave these responses to the question, why do you want to live? One person said to watch lightning in a storm. Another said to succeed in something because we all need to succeed in something. Someone after my own heart said, chocolate. Another said to have friends and have fun with them. Someone else said coffee on a chilly morning. Some of you can agree with that. Another, the joy of music. And another said to love and be loved. I want to ask this morning, what is your reason for living? At the top of your notes today, and I trust you've gotten some that you can jot some things down, it says, for to me, to live is, and there's a blank there. What would you put in that blank? The Apostle Paul gave his answer here in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. He said, for to me, to live is Christ. That's a key verse in this section of the book of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ. Today as we look at this text, I want us to see that if our answer, if our answer is to fill in that blank with the word Christ, like Paul, that is if he is our number one reason for living, then five statements are going to be true of us as they were of Paul. The first of those is that I'll make the gospel message a priority. Look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul was so in love with Jesus, he committed his life to lifting up the name of Jesus so much that he wanted as many people as possible to hear and understand the good news, the gospel, about who Jesus is, about why He came to earth, about our condition before God as sinners, and what He accomplished for sinners on the cross of Calvary, and how by faith we can have eternal life as a gift from Him. Paul was in prison when he wrote these words, but he didn't spend his time asking, why is all this happening to me? Instead, as we see in verses 12 and 13, his passion was, what is happening with the gospel? What's happening with the spread of the good news? Surely some people thought when they heard that he was put in prison in Rome, that that would be the end of his ministry. Some of them no doubt said, what a terrible waste. This great apostle is now out of commission. But Paul would have said, no, not at all. It's not a waste. It is an incredible opportunity. You see, Paul was chained every day in this dungeon cell to a member of what the text calls the Praetorian Guard. That means also that these guards were chained to him. They were special forces, if you will. Secret service. But Paul didn't keep his passion for Jesus or for the gospel a secret. He shared his faith 
every day with these men. What an opportunity. And God brought some of those guards to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn a page or two over in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 22, and notice what Paul says. Philippians 4.22 All the saints, all the Christians, greet you, he says, especially those of Caesar's household. Now when he says household there, he's not talking about Caesar's immediate family. We don't even know if Caesar had an immediate family. He's talking about this special guard that at times took care of prisoners like Paul and at other times protected Caesar and his household. So effective was Paul's witness that he says in these two verses that this gospel message was reaching the far corners of the city of Rome. He even uses the expression, everyone else the Praetorian Guard, and everyone else. I want you to know something, by the way. History records for us that this Praetorian Guard, this secret service, was started 70 years earlier by Caesar Augustus. And by the time Paul was around, by the time Paul was put in prison, these men numbered 9,000. Now, not all 9,000 took care of Paul. But some of them did take care of Paul, and some of them had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were sharing their faith with others of the Praetorian Guard, as well as their family. The gospel was spreading, and that excited Paul. God had brought him to Rome for a special assignment. And Paul was excited to fulfill that assignment. He wasn't in prison because he was a uh, criminal. He wasn't in prison because he was even a political prisoner of Rome. He was in prison because God wanted him there. Because God had an assignment for him. And so he was excited about the spread of the gospel to that huge city. When he says everyone else here, he doesn't mean that every single person in Rome heard the gospel. But he is implying that there were many and even more were hearing the gospel as time went on. And people were hearing the gospel in the city of Philippi where he writes this letter to his friends. You know, it's interesting that many people who profess to be Christians today have no clue what the gospel is. They really don't. I want to have... The Apostle Paul himself answered the question, what is the gospel? But first, let me tell you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not telling someone, if you're having problems, just invite Jesus into your life and all your problems are gone. How many of you who've come to know Jesus as Savior have lived a problem-free life since then? That's what I thought. It doesn't work that way, does it? That's not the gospel. The gospel also is not, if you want to be happy, let Jesus into your heart. Because God isn't focused on our happiness. God is focused on our deep, settled joy and peace. That's far different than circumstantial happiness. Up one day and down the next. And thirdly, 
The gospel is not, as so many are saying today, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I can tell you today that is not found anywhere in the Bible. Some of the most devout people of God, like the Apostle Paul, were not healthy and were not wealthy. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Here's what Paul says the gospel is. And these are his own words, led by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Listen as I read. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. This is it. He says, This is the gospel you also received and in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. I delivered to you first of all, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the Gospel. That's as simple as it gets. The message is this. We're all sinners, destined for an eternity in hell, separated from a holy God. But Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of men and women all over the world, The very Son of God left heaven's glory and came down here to earth and lived among us for 33 years, lived a perfect life, and then gave His life willingly on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life. And to prove that He was God and that He did this for you and me, He came alive from the dead. Amen? And this living Lord offers us a sinner-take-all gift. Salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Of course we want to make this message a priority. And at the same time, secondly, we want to be good examples of His to others. A second statement that's true of every person who can fill that blank in with the word Christ, for to me to live is Christ, is that I want to serve as an example to others. Look at verse 14. Paul says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Paul was happy to be in that dungeon if it meant the gospel would spread around Rome and around the city of Philippi. And if it meant that his life and his circumstances would be a motivation for other Christians to step up and say, we'll take Paul's place. He's set aside right now, but we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to tell the good news. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they recognize his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. It's a good expression, isn't it? I can tell you right now that Paul was stacking up huge piles of money, so to speak. His example was worth every coin or bill. 
Paul is always looking on the positive side of his dungeon experience. And as he does, he sees two groups of people who are preaching the gospel. One of them, the first group, he says, are preaching it with the wrong motives. Their message of the gospel is correct. It's accurate. It's 1 Corinthians 15. But they have the wrong motives. What were their motives? Envy. Strife. They were envious of Paul's high standing among believers everywhere he went. He says in verse 17 that they were motivated by selfish ambition. That's an interesting phrase. That phrase, selfish ambition, was actually used back then, as it could be today, for politicians who wanted to say and do anything that would get them votes. So these people were preaching the gospel, but they were doing it out of selfish ambition. Look at me, look at me. Don't pay attention to Paul, he's in jail. And I'll bet you there were some of them that were saying, you know, I always thought that Paul was kind of a rabble-rouser. I always thought that he was always anti-government. And now look, there he is in a Roman prison. That's, that's probably what he deserves. And there may have been others who were saying things like, you know, Paul was a good man, but he just preached too much. He was always preaching preaching stuff way too seriously and now look what it got him. But Paul wasn't upset or disturbed. He knew their motives were wrong, but what gladdened his heart was that the gospel was being preached. That was the most important thing to him. And then this other group, oh, how they made him glad. They were preaching where Paul couldn't preach on the streets of Philippi They were stepping out of their comfort zone. They were doing what they hadn't done before as Paul was doing it when he came to Philippi. They were doing it now. As I read about that first group, the ones who were preaching out of selfish ambition and out of envy and strife, I thought about this fact, and it's a sad fact, unfortunately, that some of the most stinging rebukes and harshest words we ever hear from people around us come from brothers and sisters in the Lord who are envious or selfish or have some personal axe to grind. And they don't realize it, but they are in the worst prison of all. They are in bondage to self instead of being free in Christ. But here were some spurred on by Paul's bold stand for Christ, stepping out of their comfort zone, courageously speaking up for Christ. I can tell you today, this is a fact, we need more people like that who will risk stepping out of their comfort zone. If you're like me, some of us are not as bold as we ought to be when opportunities come to share our faith. The early church, Acts chapter 4, you can read it for yourselves. The apostles were being persecuted, put in prison, released from prison, back to tell their fellow brothers and sisters about what happened to them. And the whole group began praying that God would give them boldness. And when you get to the end of Acts chapter 4, it says they went out on the streets of Jerusalem and preached with boldness. 
God answered their prayer. If you lack boldness to share Christ, ask God for boldness. Guess what? He will give it to you. Paul also says here that he is set for the defense of the gospel. That word defense is a word coming from the Roman military. It refers to a sentry, a guard who's on duty, like the men who were chained to Paul. But Paul also was a sentry on duty. He was a good soldier for Jesus Christ. And he inspired many others to want to be a soldier in the army of the King of Kings. I think Paul may have had another group in mind too, but he doesn't mention them specifically in these verses. I think he has in mind the opportunity that God gave him to be an example to these special forces of Caesar's. I thought about those guards. I thought how they probably were just like prison guards today, and I've met some of them over the years. They're a little bit cynical. They have the idea, and they may be right, that just about everybody in there thinks they're innocent. Everybody behind the walls thinks they've done nothing wrong. And some of them use religion to try to get another hearing, another trial, another opportunity to talk about getting out. But these guards saw something very different in Paul. He wasn't complaining about his circumstances. He wasn't saying, hey, I've done nothing wrong. I need to get out of here. You need to let me go. He was right where God wanted him to be. And I think that's an excellent thing to realize. Paul was there as long as God planned for him to be there. He didn't complain about unfair treatment. He was innocent of any charges, but he said, I'm here where God wants me, and I'm going to do the job. I thought long and hard about this question that I'm proposing to you this morning, how you fill in that blank. I thought about my own life as a Christian. I've been a Christian now for almost 58 years, since I was six years old. And I had to ask myself, is my life and testimony a better example for Jesus than it was when I was a young Christian? I had to ask myself again, is my example more consistent, more in love with Jesus than even a year ago? If that's the case, then I really do want Jesus to get the glory. That's the third statement in your notes about this person who's totally sold out to Christ like Paul. I'll gladly give him, Christ, all the glory. Look at verse 18. Paul asks, What then? Only in every way that whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, just like those Philippians had, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then his statement of convincing truth For me to live is Christ. 
Marine Corps recruiter Randy Norfleet survived the Oklahoma City bombing in April of 1995. Even though he lost 40% of the blood in his body and needed 250 stitches to close all of his wounds. But he never lost consciousness in the ambulance because according to the rescue personnel, he was too busy praying prayers of thanks for his survival. Even when the doctors told him he would probably lose sight in his right eye from a piece of glass, Mr. Norfleet said, and I quote, Losing an eye is a small thing. Whatever brings you closer to God is a blessing. Through all of this, I've been brought closer to God. I've become more dependent on Him and less on myself. Paul could confidently say that he had drawn closer to God through this dungeon experience than ever before. That he was more dependent on the Lord than ever before. He was rejoicing that the gospel was being preached even by those with less than honorable motives. That he was being an example. And I think that's a a good lesson for us. In fact, it's a good lesson for a lot of preachers and leaders in local churches. Paul was saying, what then in every way Christ is preached, Christ is proclaimed. I'll rejoice in that. Because what happens sometimes with us pastors and, and elders and leaders in churches is we look at some other ministry that's doing things a little differently than we are and we start accusing and attacking and pointing fingers and saying, not out loud, but in our hearts, I wish their ministry would decrease and my church would grow. Not terrible, but it's a fact. Some church leaders do that. How wonderful it would be instead to have Paul's example. I'm even more excited that the gospel is being preached. It's going everywhere. Christ is preached and that's good enough for me. You see, if Jesus gets glory from other people and their ministries as they preach the gospel, what we ought to be saying is, thank God for that. They don't do things exactly the way we would do them. They have different methods, different approaches to ministry. But thank God that the gospel is going forward. That's what matters. If Jesus gets the glory from other people's ministries, praise Him. Praise Him. Paul could often remind himself that even though he wasn't out on the streets of Rome preaching on the corners, he did have an audience, a captive one at that, chained to him every day. They heard him, and some of them responded. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks as his first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here in Preston and the surrounding area. If Jesus really is my reason for living, I want Him to get the glory for everything and anything that I do to further the gospel and to proclaim His name. Please realize this. I can't give Jesus more glory than He already has. Right? It'd be like a, a shining a flashlight on a bright, sunshiny day in the direction of the sun. It's not going to make the sun any brighter. 
But what I can do is I can shine a light into the dark places around us. And I can shine the light of Jesus Christ, for He is the light of the world, into those dark places. Jesus came into a very dark world. He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He told us in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what He wants for us. So any good that I do is designed to point to the Savior, not to anything in me. My theme ought to be that of the old Christian hymn. I love the words of this song. Not I but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every thought and action. Every look and action, I'm sorry. Not I but Christ in every thought and word. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Oh, that it might be no more I but Christ who lives in me. That should be our theme song. If we want to get recognition, if we want to get a pat on the back, then we're not giving glory to Jesus Christ. What's going to happen if we keep that up is that down the road, our former friends are going to think of us as show-offs. Our number of friends will dwindle and we won't be uh, having that big list of friends on Facebook anymore. No, seriously. We will lose real friends by having that focus all on self. But if my focus is God, if my focus is His glory, if my focus is I want to shine a light that will shine on Him and point others to Him, will be thrilled at what God can do through us. And He will get all the glory. The glory He richly deserves. And then fourthly, I can keep that up all the way to heaven. The fourth statement that's true about everyone who says, I want Jesus to be the reason for living, is that I am thrilled that I'll get to see Him someday in heaven. Look at verse 21 at the end of the verse. Not only does he say, for to me to live is Christ, but he says to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. For that, notice, is very much better. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. And I think Paul would say, right, right on, exactly. And that's why Paul says to die is gain. He wasn't a masochist. He wasn't thinking suicide. As much as he loved ministry and loved people, he loved Jesus even more. 
He was past the age of 60 when he wrote this. And he'd been a Christian for at least 20 years. And yet for him, the exciting thing was that heaven was just around the corner. He got such a blessing out of preaching, such a blessing out of sharing the gospel, such a blessing out of traveling to remote places and to big cities like Philippi. But no wonder he would say, I don't know what to choose. To stay around with you, that'd be awesome. I'd get to share Christ with you and see you grow in the Lord. We'll talk more about that in a second. But he says, I really have a desire to depart. That word depart is an interesting word. It was used in ancient Greek literature for uh, loosening the ropes of a ship that was tied at the dock so that it could sail. I find that interesting that Paul would use that since he came on a ship to Rome. Acts chapter 27 records that they were on a ship on their way to Rome when they hit foul weather and the sea became tossed and torn and ultimately the ship sunk. But every person on board, including Paul, was saved. Now he wants to set sail for heaven to see Jesus face to face and this time nothing's going to stop him from his safe arrival the question for you and me is this do I live for Jesus so much that I am longing for the day when I see him and spend eternity in his presence I read this the other day and it really struck home with me it's written by Eric Raymond he's pastor of a church plant in Omaha, Nebraska called Emmaus Bible Church. He says, when so much of the emphasis is upon the here and now and so little is placed on the new city that awaits us, we must ask the question, do you even want to go to heaven? Let's say I had the ability to make you a deal where you could stay here on this world forever. You'd never die and the ability to enjoy the world without, without, would not end, I'm sorry. You could play all the video games, watch all the sunsets, drink and eat all the whatever. There'd be football, hunting, shopping, whatever else you want. You could ride the merry-go-round of this world forever without having to put in another quarter. The only catch is no God. That's right, you can't pray, you can't read the Bible, you can't go to church or anything. So he asked then, would you take it? Would you take it? Good question. Would we choose to stay here and soak up all the pleasure that the world has to offer? Or does the magnetic beauty and majesty of Jesus pull us in that direction more strongly than anything that would pull us here on earth? I hope that's true for you. If Christ truly is my life, then I will be longing for heaven. How many of you, seriously, know someone close to you who's already there by faith in Jesus Christ? They've died and they've gone to heaven. How many? Quite a few. My father is there. My mother's there. My older brother is there. An older sister is there. My grandmother on my mom's side is there. And lots and lots of Christian friends that I've had over the years including some folks from this congregation, like Lauren Brewster, Shelley Camp. Praise God for their memory 
And I'm looking forward to seeing Him someday, but I'm even more looking forward to seeing my Savior. Again, if I'm thinking about Jesus being my real reason for living, then finally I will want others to know Him better. I want them to grow spiritually. I'll be involved right now while I wait for heaven in helping them grow. Look at verse 24. He says, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more needful or necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Others ought to mean more to me than any of my self-interests. If I go golfing with some other guys, my goal shouldn't be to have the lowest score. My goal should be to spend quality time with my friends. If I go out on a pontoon boat on a local reservoir with a bunch of guys, my goal shouldn't be to catch the largest trout or bass. And the last time I went out, I can tell you I didn't. My goal should be I want to spend time with these guys. I want to get to know them better. Paul felt confident that for the time being he would stay behind and help the brothers and sisters in Philippi, help them with their walk, their progress, their experience of the full joy of fellowship on this adventure with Jesus. He looked forward to possibly being released, if that was God's will, and being able to go back to Philippi and spend time with them. He was excited about the fact that they were confident that God was using him right where he was. God wants to use all of his children, all of us who know Jesus as Savior, right where we are. We don't have to wait someday to be uh, called to a another place, a foreign country, for example, and be a missionary, we can be used right here, right now. And being used by God, all to the glory of God, does not mean that there will be uh, problem-free experiences, that it's going to be some easy and fun thing. It doesn't mean that there'll never be any squabbles with us and other Christians. It doesn't mean, certainly, that we are going to teach and pray with and help these other people grow and all of them are going to grow dramatically. It doesn't work that way. They're not all going to get it. They're not all going to blossom spiritually. They're not all going to thank us profusely. But that shouldn't stop us from doing what Jesus called us to do. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 12. However you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. We ought to be others-minded. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5.13, You were called to freedom, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, or for self, we could say, but through love serve one another. So the message is clear. While we're waiting for heaven someday, we are to be serving. Not serving ourselves, but serving others. We are to invest in people. 
We are to love them since Christ loves them. We're to help them mature in the faith so that they can become more mature and they themselves can help others mature. I want to give you a list of names that maybe some of you have heard of before. Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Jim Elliott. In 1955, these five young men, all under the age of 35, felt called to go to Ecuador. God had given them a vision of reaching a tribe of Indians called the Aucas who lived in the rainforest. No one had ever presented the gospel to them. These five missionaries, all trained and devoted to God, began praying about ways to make contact with the Aucas. In September of that year, they began flying over the village and dropping small baskets of gifts for the Aucas. Sometimes they would land their plane and set some things on the ground. And eventually the Alcas began to give them gifts back. And when they would take off, they'd take those gifts with them while the Alcas would hide. In January of 1956, these five men decided that it was time to make contact in person with the Alcas. After much prayer, they decided to establish a base camp on the beach of the Kareri River. January 8th of 1956, 3.30 in the afternoon, they met the Alcas face to face, and the Alcas speared them to death because they thought, wrongly, that they had come to hurt them. The news shocked the world. Many people wondered why in the world would men, young men, waste their lives like that. But when the journals of Jim Elliot were published several years later, they found this sentence. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What did Jim Elliot and the other four gain? What happened as a result of their ministry? Within a few years, 1,000 new missionaries around the world felt called to serve in remote places because of their martyrdom. Soon, Indian Bible schools were started in Ecuador, and they were filled to overflowing with native believers wanting to learn God's Word and learn how to share it. Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot, widows of two of these men, moved into the village and began to translate the Bible into the Alka language. Nine years later, two of these Alka Indian men, two who had stabbed to death these five missionaries, became Christians, and they in turn baptized two of the children from Nate Saint's family. A flourishing church was established among the Alcas and some other neighboring tribes. Their life did make a difference. And the reason it made a difference is because I'm convinced that each of those five men 
could say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I want you to do something this morning. If you have something to write with, if you don't, I'll understand, but if you have something to write with, take those sermon notes and at the very top of that page you see that blank. For to me to live is blank. I want to ask you, I want to challenge you to put in that blank what fits your life. If you really believe that for you to live is Christ, then these five statements will be true of you and me. If you're not sure what to put in that blank, call out to Him today in prayer. Say, God, give me a reason for living that is higher than myself. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, it starts there. It starts with trusting Him as your personal Savior from sin. If you are a Christian, but you still aren't sure what reason you have for living, ask God to give you a passion for Jesus Christ that will look beyond the present time to heaven and in the meantime will be busy serving the Lord. This closing song we're going to sing, I believe, is a testimony for every Christian who, like Paul, says, for to me to live is Christ. It simply says, you are my all in all. Stand and sing it with me this morning, will you? my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give I be a fool. You are my all in Taking my sin, taking my sin, my cross, my shame, rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, fill my cup. You are my all in all. Worthy is your name. Amen. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus, Lamb again. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy 
Jesus, Lamb of God, Word.